Good morning and welcome to our worship for the fourth Sunday of Advent and also Christmas Eve. Our worship this morning is led by Graham. It is really lovely actually to see all of your faces um, on Zoom for a change rather than having you all, um, so many of you behind me on a screen. Um, and I hope that as many of you as possible will stay for some breakout rooms after the service so we can chat to each other. Um, we have some some sad family news today. Uh, we were sorry to hear from Katrina that her husband Ben's mum died on Monday morning. Uh, we keep Ben, Katrina and their wider family in our prayers at this sad time. Um, we also have a, a, a an update from Joyce and Morag. Joyce is making a gradual pro gradual progress at home following her operation. Um, she'd be glad to have some visitors or a wee phone call. Um, a reminder from Laura that the deadline for contributions to the January key is the 27th of December. Um, so please send any contributions to Laura at her, the key email address. Um, we have received a, a Christmas card. It's nice to receive a Christmas card as a church. Um, this one is from Lily Fraser. Um, I will uh, scan it in so that you can read the whole card, but I'll, I'll read a, a bit of it to you. Um, Dear Hillhead Baptist Church, I'm wishing you a blessed and happy Christmas and a healthy and, as this card says, a joy-filled new year. I'm sorry that this has been a sad year for the church, but I pray that your faithfulness will bring blessing. With love and with a prayer that you will feel God near to help, cheer and encourage. From Lily. So as I said, I'll scan that so you can read the whole card, but it was lovely to receive it. A reminder that next Sunday, the 31st of December, we will gather again here on Zoom um, and Nancy and I will lead our worship. These are all our notices. Thanks, Holly. Good morning. It's uh, good to join with you on Zoom today. And as we begin our worship, I wanted to read uh, the, the well-used verses when it comes to Advent from Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 to 7. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness. From that time on and forever, the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Today, we come to celebrate the birth of Christ, the mighty God who assumed human nature and was born of Mary to live among us. In him was life, and that life was the light of all humanity. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it.
Continue our worship this morning by praying together. We'll be followed by the Lord's Prayer. Lord Jesus, by being born one of us and lying humbly in a manger, you show how much God loves the world. Let the light of your love always shine in our hearts and be reflected through our actions. Lord Jesus, your birth at Bethlehem draws us to kneel in wonder at heaven touching earth. Accept our heartfelt praise and worship as the one who liberates and reconciles. Lord Jesus, Son of Mary, as our Creator who became like us, you know us and love us as you walked amongst us, so now you also share our lives and hear our prayers. Loving Jesus, you were born in humble surroundings, but were worshipped by angels. Be with all those who feel distant distant from celebrations, whether through pain, conflict or oppression. May they know your supernatural presence and your peace that surpasses understanding. Loving Jesus, the Magi brought myrrh, frankincense and gold to represent that your kingdom had come, your suffering that would save and your life that intercedes and reconciles. Lord, all good gifts come from you and so through our worship we return to you what you have given to us. Christ born for us, Son of God given for us. May God, who has called us out of darkness into his marvellous light, bless us and fill us with peace. Amen. And now we pray the Lord's Prayer in whatever language of your choice. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. I'm not sure how this will go um, uh, as we move back on to zoom um or all of us on zoom should i say uh but i was hoping to get some kind of interaction so you can use the chat function as, as ever but if uh, anyone wants to shout out we can do so in a in a respectful manner um but i wanted to know what are some of your favorite christmas traditions what are the things that you do in this kind of or have done in this advent period leading up to christmas or that you'll do over the next couple of weeks um that you do maybe every year that are just things that are special to you. Has anyone got any special Christmas traditions? Jenny, kick us off. I can see your hand up. Um, I have a very beautiful Advent um, series of four candles. They're Swedish and they uh, consist of four horses with candelabra and spikes. You're supposed to put apples on the spikes, but however, they go um, kind of shriveled up. So I just put decorations, wooden decorations on. But that candelabra goes back 40-odd years and is very special to me um, because it also brings in the Scandinavian side of my children's heritage. Excellent. I will, by the way, I could actually send Laura a picture of it for the magazine, for key. There we go, Laura. I might take you up on that. <laughs> <laughs> Any, anyone else? I'm not sure I can see everyone. I can see most people. So if you just want to speak out, feel free. Got one in the chat that says Ben makes a Christmas breakfast of bacon and pancakes. That sounds a good way to start Christmas morning, for sure. Any other Christmas traditions? I bake cookies using my mom's recipes. And I benefit from that. <laughs> Anyone else? So I um I always make a Christmas so since about 2019, I've made a Christmas cake. But there's only two of us in the house, so I like to divide it up and give chunks of it away. 
that's very restrained. I'm not sure that I could do that. I mean, I've still got <laughs> half a Christmas cake between two people, Graham. Let's be let's be realistic. <laughs> Excellent. That sounds like good good proportions. Uh, another one in the chat is putting up the nativity scene from my childhood. Yeah, I really like that. That's really nice. Thanks, Tamara. Graham, I, I can see, Graham, you're talking, but I think you're still on mute. There we go. Yes. Uh, about this time, it's a tradition that we have three blue bulbs, hyacinths, in a special bowl, uh, which we've had for years. And uh, the blue represents the three boys that God gave us. And thank God are still with us. Uh, the only misfortune is that um, I couldn't plant them this year. And so I gave the bowl to Pirio and she planted them in Orkney. And now that they're coming out, she brought it down when they came a few, no, a couple of weeks ago, brought it down for us. And the colour wasn't visible then. But as they've opened recently, they've become red. So something gone wrong in the, <laughs> in the basic idea. But uh, <laughs> we appreciate the colour all the same. Yeah, that sounds brilliant. Those uh, blue turned red plants. That's a, that's an interesting one. <laughs> um, well, I, I, it's funny this morning, My uh, our, our internet at home has been playing up. So I'm actually at my parents' house. Um, which is funny talking about Christmas traditions and this uh, I didn't I didn't plan this but this um, ornament here is one that always goes on my parents you can't really see it um, particularly well it's of a, of a boy and a girl and it has my siblings names on it but they must have got it before they had me so I'm not actually on it so they put that on it every year just to remind reminds me that I'm not included no just kidding <laughs> um, but I love Christmas and I love um all sorts, all sorts of Christmas traditions, um, and you know, one of the one of the interesting things is a lot of our Christmas traditions actually rehearse something about the Christmas story. They maybe don't tell it as such in a in a narrative sense, um, but I love indulging in in a lot of Christmas traditions because I think when we kind of peel back behind um, the, the actions, the practices, they actually reveal a lot about what we think about Christmas. Now, this is very much from a British tradition. Um, so some of these things will be familiar to some of you, some of them might not be familiar to, to others of you. Um, but when you think about even the way that we decorate our homes, um, I love putting up Christmas lights. I think that's probably my favourite um, Christmas tradition. Um, ours go up pretty early on, at least by the 1st of December, if not slightly earlier. Um, and our house sits on a kind of slightly dark corner and I love the idea of just filling our front garden with lights because it reminds me about the the verse that is well used at Christmas that the people walking in darkness have seen a great light and so much of our Christmas traditions are actually that interaction of light and dark um, and even our Christmas trees um, at least traditionally are evergreen evergreen firs usually and that's to remind us about the eternal life that Christ brought um, when he was uh, through his incarnation. When we put a star or an angel on top of our Christmas tree, we're, we're rehearsing something of the symbols that we find in our Christmas traditions. Um, even there's a, there's a very old um, possible link in terms of why we have a Christmas tree at all, that December the 24th is the named day for Adam and Eve. And in the Eastern tradition, in the Eastern church tradition, they would decorate a tree with apples to, to represent the story from Genesis. And then on December 25th, um, as time has gone on, it's changed into the Christmas tree, the idea that Christ has recapitu recapitulated um, the, the recovery of Adam and Eve's disobedience. And so we celebrate in the Christmas tree this kind of um, renewal that Christ brings. And I think that's really uh, interesting and fascinating, just that a lot of our decorations remind us um, about something of the Christmas story. Even the fact that we usually associate holly with Christmas is a reminder of Christ's crown of thorns and the holly, the red berries are to remind us of the blood 
of Christ. And so even at the beginning of the story, at the beginning of Christ's birth, we're reminded a little bit about the end of his life as well. And I, I don't know if any of you have advent calendars. Um, I love a good advent calendar. This year I've had a cheese advent calendar, which is just brilliant. Um, 24 pieces of cheese in the lead up to Christmas has been ideal for me. But I do wonder um, how many people actually go into the supermarkets, buy an advent calendar and don't really know what advent is. And yet this language of advent and advent calendars, it becomes so... Uh, it's so immersed in our in our society and our culture, and and yet it's the fast that leads up to the feast. These days, we tend to think of it as the time of preparation that leads up to the feast of Christmas. But every time that we open our Advent calendar, every time we think about Advent, we're, we're anticipating the the joy of that the feast commemorates. We're walking the paths of the Christmas story in the days leading up to Christmas, as we share in that anticipation of the birth of Christ. And for those of you who like your Christmas dinner, well, there's even a lot of symbolism in the food that we have. Um, I, I love the tradition of stir up Sunday. It's generally thought of actually being more in, in England than in Scotland, but stir up Sunday is the last Sunday in November. And this is the day that you're traditionally uh, supposed to make your Christmas pudding or maybe your Christmas cake. And it's called Stir Up Sunday, actually, because it's the first couple of words of the, the, the opening words of the Book of Common Prayer for that Sunday and says, Stir up, we beseech thee, O Lord, the wills of thy faithful people, that they plenteously bringing forth the fruit of good works may of thee be plenteously rewarded through Jesus Christ our Lord. It's a bit of a mouthful, but in there it's stirring up and has fruit and that's what we do in the Christmas pudding. And when we make the Christmas pudding, traditionally it's supposed to have 13 ingredients, 12 for the apostles of Christ and one for Christ. And you get all the family together and you stir it from east to west to remind us of the journey of the wise men took from east to west. And the spices that we use within both Christmas cake and Christmas pudding are supposed to remind us again of the Magi coming from the east where these spices would have traditionally be found. Even mince pies were originally baked in a rectangle shape to remind us of the crib of Christ. And so even by eating our Christmas dinner and some of our Christmas fav uh, favourite snacks are all helping us to remind us of the Christmas traditions, the Christmas story, the things that Christmas represents. Maybe your favourite part of uh, Christmas is actually Boxing Day. Um, once it's all over and you've had all the all the exhaustion of Christmas Day, it's the day that you can just kick back and relax, perhaps. Um, but even Boxing Day comes from a Christmas tradition. Um, the box that's referred to is the alms boxes, the, the charity boxes that churches would gather throughout the whole year. And they were broken open on Christmas Day and then the proceeds of them distributed on the Feast of St. Stephen's, which happens to be December the 26th, which we now call Boxing Day. And so even Boxing Day reminds us of the, the charity of the love that came down at Christmas. And what about the 12 days of Christmas, that period after Christmas? Well, that 12 days, I've seen a lot this year that's, that seems to think that 12 days of Christmas is leading up to Christmas, but actually the 12 days of Christmas are the Christmas, the time between Christmas and January the 6th, which is Epiphany, which is the, the arrival of the, the Magi to Christ. Um, and so every time that you hear a reference to the 12 days of Christmas, every time that you hear the, 12, the tune, the 12 days of Christmas, again, that's a reminder of something of the Christmas story. And there's lots more that I could go into, but I think you've probably got the idea that a lot of the things that we do around about Christmas, a lot of the practices, a lot of the traditions that we we maybe do almost uh, unconsciously, are a lot of them are there to remind us about the meaning behind Christmas. They maybe don't narrate the story, they maybe don't tell us the full picture, but they do tell us something about the the, the Christmas story. Some of them have maybe been changed somewhat, some of them maybe um, have changed almost out of recognition. And yet actually when we take part and then we start to redeem them, we start to tell the story of Christ, we start to remember 
Christ's love. And and so that's why I really enjoy this time of Christmas, this time of Advent leading up to Christmas and all the tr- Christmas traditions, all, all the trappings of the season, because behind them, I'm reminded that this is about Christ's love. going to share a video now you may have seen it it's uh, about seven years old um and it's a it's a bit of fun but uh, hopefully you will enjoy this video thanks holly an angel came to see mary she was doing laundry and then the angel just appeared and she was really scared be heavy honey Fynid gorchymun allan oddi wrth y gostas cesar i drethu'r holl fyd. Y trethiad yma am naithbwyd gyntaf pam oedd crenius yn rhaglaw ar Syria. A ffawbaethant i'w trethu bob un i'w ddinas eu hun, a Joseph hefyd aeth i fyny o Galilea, o ddinas Nazareth, i Judea, i ddinas Dafydd, a'r honelwyr Bethlehem, am ei fod o dŷ a thylwyth Dafydd. I'w drethu gyda maer, yr hon oedd y wyddi asid yn rhaig iddo, yr hon oedd yn feichiog. A bi, tra oedd ni'n twy yno, cyflawnwyd y dyddiau i esgor ohoni. A hi asgorodd ar ei mab cyntaf yn edig, ac a'i rwymodd ef mewn cydachau, ac a'i dod o ddef yn y preseb, am nad oedd ni'n lle yn y lledu. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up to the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger, because there was no guest room available for them. Ac roedd yn y wlad honno fe geiliaid yn aros yn y maes, ac yn gwyliad eu praidd liw nos. Ac wele, angel yr arglwydd y safodd gyllaw iddynt, ac o goniant yr arglwydd a ddysglerioedd o'i hamgylch a gofni yn ddyrfawr am naithant. Ar angel a ddywedwr wrthynt, na gofnwch, canis wele, rwy fi yn mynegu chi newyddion da o lawenydd mawr, yr hwn na fydd i'r holl bobl. Canis ganwyr i chi heddiw geidwad yn ninas Dafydd, yr hwn yw crist yr arglwydd. A hyn fydd arwydd i chi, chi a gewch y dyn bach wedi ei rwymo mewn cydachau, I thought he in a preseb. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, 
keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a saviour has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. I ddynion y wyllys da. A bi, pa maith yr ynglion y maith oddi wrthynt i'r nef, y bygiliaid hwythau a ddywyd a sant wrth ei gilydd, a wn hyd Bethlehem, a gwelwn y peth hwn a wnaeth fwyd, yr hwn y hysbysodd ar arglwydd i ni. A hwy a ddaethant ar fris, ac a gawsant maer a Joseph ar dyn bach yn gorwedd yn y preseb. Ar fan welsant, Hwy a gohoeddasant y gair a ddywedasid wrthynt am y bachgen hwn. A ffaw barai clywsant, a rhyfeddasant am y pethau a ddywedasid gan y begiliaid wrthynt. Ithi'r maer a gadwodd y pethau hyn oll, gan ei hystyried yn ei chalon. Ar begiliaid a ddychwelasant, gan ogoneddi am oliannu diw am yr holl pethau a glywsant ac a welsant, fel y ddywedasid wrthynt. Suddenly, a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth peace to those on whom his favour rests. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. When they'd seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child, and all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. Thank you, Jeff, for reading that in Welsh for us. Um, so I've kind of shared a little bit about Christmas traditions and the traditional ways of, of celebrating Christmas. And we've had two examples of telling the Christmas story, one Christmas story according to, to kids, um, which I hope you enjoyed, and at least um, Luke's account of the, the Christmas story. And what I wanted to share with you this morning was... um looking a, a, a bit more about the, the biblical story, looking a bit more um, about why certain things are included in the story and, and maybe in some ways why some things um, cause us to ask more questions. The, the, the biblical story, the biblical account of, of the Christmas story has, how do we say, I guess historical imprecisions is maybe the best way that I, I can think of it, and, and some dis- discrepancies in some way. Uh, what I'm thinking about is when we look at the four Gospels and we look at the, the account of Christmas, well, we look at Mark's Gospel, which most biblical scholars consider to be the the most foundational um, Gospel, probably the earliest written. And Mark's Gospel doesn't have a birth story at all. John kind of goes off and does his own thing as a kind of origin story, but doesn't really talk about the birth of Christ at all. And so we're left with Matthew and, and Luke. Um, Matthew's gospel is kind of interesting because he has the genealogy and then doesn't really talk about the birth so much. He talks about the angel visiting Joseph and then jumps straight into the visit of the Magi. Um, Luke, on the other hand, spends a bit more time in the actual birth um, and records the visit of the shepherds but doesn't mention anything about the Magi at all. Uh, and so the, the Christmas story, uh, as we know it, um, as we tend to recount it, is, is a compilation really between what we learn from Matthew and what we learn from Luke. Um, and we kind of bring them together and do a little bit of interpretation and, and a little bit of conjecture. Uh, and we tell the Christmas story that way, even though 
the story in Luke and the story in Matthew um, are actually quite different. Now, do I think that these this is problematic? Do I think that the kind of, um, as I say, that maybe some of the historical imprecision um, is a problem for us? Does it devalue the stories? I actually think it, it doesn't. In fact, I think in some ways, if we look at these stories correctly, it can enhance the stories a little bit. Um, we ask the questions, why are certain things included? Um, and we, we want to kind of understand the, the context that they were in. You see, the gospel writers, I don't think, were writing their, their gospels for historical accuracy. I, I don't think they felt the need to prove the existence of Christ through their historical accuracy. For them, Jesus existed. Um, it wasn't a kind of exercise in, in history. They were trying to write these accounts in such a way that they told the story to help us to understand what the people of the time thought, to help draw us into the story, to help us to understand why people reacted and responded in a certain way. In some way, it's the contrast between what we might say is a, a police witness statement that strips everything out of a of an event bar the, the absolute facts versus when we're telling the story of an event where we want people to to be drawn in, where we want people to kind of learn a bit about the story, to, to, to imagine that they were there themselves. And the Gospels are much more like this latter idea of, of drawing us into the story. And so they're not really written from a, a kind of historical accuracy point of view. They're written for us trying to put ourselves in that story and say, so what was going on in these stories? What were the people thinking? How did they re react? How did they respond? So what are some examples maybe of, of kind of what I'm talking about? Well, um, I think probably one of them is is the census. Um, Mary and Joseph travelled to Bethlehem to take part in the census that was called by Quirinius. Um, and they travel down to Bethlehem. They arrive probably at Joseph's family house um, because he may have had a lot of family coming back. It says there's no room, no guest room available for him. And they end up um, in, in a room that was maybe shared with animals. It could have been something like a stable. Maybe not. I'm not sure that it actually impacts the story that much. But this is Joseph coming back to his family home. Um, Luke records the, the census being under Quirinius. Um, and we, we know from other historical documents that Quirinius um, called the census in 6 CE, common era, or AD in old currency. Um, and yet, in a couple of verses later, Luke also records that John the Baptist was born under King Herod. Um, King Herod died in 4 BCE, 4 years BC um, in old currency again. And so there's this kind of historical imprecision that seems to suggest that there's a 10-year discrepancy between where Luke positions the birth of Christ. Was it under King Herod or, or was it in this under the census of Quirinius? But actually, um, there's different ways of explaining this. It, it could be that there were other censuses that weren't recorded, it could be that um, there was just some misinterpretation of what Luke had written. But I think actually it doesn't matter so much because Luke uses the census to communicate to us quite an important context of the birth. He didn't use it primarily to date the birth of Christ. That wasn't his purpose of of mentioning the census, nor was it just as a device to get Mary and Joseph to Bethlehem to fulfill prophecy. Instead, there are two ways that I think it gives us an understanding of what Jesus' birth really communicates to us. First is there's a there's a parallel to the Old Testament. Um, David, King David calls a census in First Chronicles 21. Um, and, and he's actually rebuked for this because it's an exercise of human authority over trusting God. And, and so in some way, um, Luke uses it here to, to provide a contrast to that census that King David called. This was Jesus coming to um, supersede any kind of human authority. 
But there's also the immediate social context where the Romans used censuses um, to uh, as a link to taxation so that they could tax the people, the, the, the occupied people of the time. Um, and the tax was then given in tribute to the Roman authorities. It was a tool of political domination. Um, and so the fact that censuses took place in the Roman world isn't disputed. Um, and it's very likely that that was the occasion that brought Mary and Joseph to Bethlehem, even if the date is somewhat disputed. But what Luke uses as the census is to illustrate the the, the social context into which Jesus was born. It, it serves to depict Jesus in opposition to systems of oppression and the one that will liberate us from, or liberate the people of God from human bondage. And the question is not so much um, when Joseph returned to Bethlehem, but actually there's a question of why he'd moved away from the family home in the first place. In, in the settings of, of Joseph's family, um, it's in, in the kind of agricultural settlements of Bethlehem, it would have been far more likely for Joseph to have been um, expected to stay and farm his family land. And so the question is, what went wrong or what happened that meant that this hadn't been the role that Joseph took up? What had meant that he had to move from Bethlehem to where he ended up? And the suggestion is that actually the tax burden that the Romans put on um, the, 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 the occupied lands was so heavy that no longer could Joseph's family pay the taxes just from farming the land that he had to go and find another source of income um, and ended up having to move away and become a carpenter in what essentially was a backwater of, of the land of the of the country at the time. And so his move was a was was a kind of forced economic migration. Um and and the census again lays the foundations for Jesus being on the side of the downtrodden, on the side of the oppressed. Um, and, and when you kind of think about Jesus being born into this context, born into this family, um, and you read later on about Mary's, or earlier on, about Mary's Magnificat, and she sings about bringing down the mighty and overthrowing the rulers of the world, that song starts to make a little more sense in the context, and, and we maybe don't realise that this is what the census is implying, but Luke using the census as a kind of central um, event within the birth of Christ is to show us that, that Jesus is on the side of the commoners, on the side of the oppressed, standing against this uh, occupying Romans, this, this political oppression of the day. Another Perhaps example that we have in the, the birth narratives is uh, the murder of the Holy Innocents and the subsequent flight to Egypt that Matthew record, records. Actually, there's there's very little evidence, um, other historical evidence that this took place. Matthew is the only one that mentions it in his Gospels and it's not mentioned in any other historical document that we have found so far. Now, it doesn't mean that it didn't happen. Um, there's plenty of uh, evidence to show that particularly Herod was particularly brutal um, and it could be that um, the, the the killing of of young children in Bethlehem which was quite a small town may not have been recorded historically so it's not saying it didn't happen but it's saying why would Matthew include this event in his narrative and one of the reasons at least that we think he would have included it is because this echoes the birth of Moses. If you remember back to the Old Testament, when Moses was born, the Pharaoh ordered or had ordered a killing of all the, the Israelite children. Um, and Moses was rescued by being placed in a basket on the River Nile. And so Matthew's using this event to remind his readers about the birth of Moses, who then escaped Egypt in the same way that Jesus and his family were recorded as 
taking flight to Egypt and then returning from Egypt, Matthew is trying to cast Jesus' birth as a, as a parallel, as a, as a fulfillment of Moses as the great liberator from the Old Testament, liberating the people of God. And so Jesus has been cast as, as being in, tra- in a long tradition um, of liberators of people who liberate peoples, uh, the people of God. And what then of the two sets of visitors, um, of the shepherds and of the wise men? It's neither, it's impossible to confirm historically whether that happened or not, whether they were there or not. There's no reason su- to suggest that they weren't. But, but their visits were strongly symbolic. For example, the Magi were emissaries of um, rulers from the East. And, and there, was, there was known to be uh, conflict between the nations to the East um, and the, the occupying Roman forces. That was kind of the, the borderline, the, the conflict line between the two empires. And so these emissaries of, of, of rulers from the East coming into the Roman-occupied territory to give homage to Jesus would only further antagonise King Herod, the ruler of the day. Um, we have to remember that Herod was a, a client king. He was only um, the ruler of the people because the Romans allowed it. He, he, he very much sided with the Romans to keep the peace, um, to try and be a kind of mediator. But he did this by uh, exerting a lot of violence and, and upholding the, the, the oppression of the Romans, not standing against it, but actually um, condoning it. And so when the wise men come in to pay homage to Jesus, a kind of foreign um, power that, that, that was in opposition to the Romans, this would just stoke the fire um, the, of antagonism that, that Herod felt already. And so it shows, again, the kind of context that Jesus was born into. From the very beginning, Jesus was placed in conflict with the, the ruling authorities with the political powers of the day. And Jesus was on the side of the common people, was on the side of the oppressed. Really the split in that social context wasn't between um, wasn't between kind of the Romans as the occupying power and those who uh, the people that were occupied. The, the, the tension was really between the, the hierarchy, the institution, of which some people bought into the likes of Herod, the tax collectors. That's why tax collectors through the Gospels were hated because they sided with the occupying power. And so the the split was more between those in power and those who were the commoners, those who were oppressed. And Jesus is found squarely right, right with the oppressed people born into that context, already born into conflict with those who were doing the oppressing. And this is why when we see the shepherds enter the scene, this was their symbolism because the shepherds were in some way almost the lowest of low of the society. Um, And yet they were the ones that were invited in to worship Jesus at his birth. It places Jesus very much within the, the common people, within the oppressed people. And not only that, but inviting the shepherds in again throws us back to King David, who himself was a shepherd king, born as a commoner, um, overlooked when it came to appointing him as king, and yet grew to being the one who led the people of God. And likewise, this paints Jesus as the shepherd king who may have been overlooked because of his common birth, but actually was the one that was going to grow to lead his people. So what does this all point to? I think there's a common, there's a couple of themes that, that we can say come out of this. First, if we think that the the Christmas story is just a historical record, then we'll miss the bigger picture and, and arguably the more important picture. Secondly, I think we often romanticise the Christmas story. We give it this kind of almost ethereal status, when in reality, the biblical accounts are gritty. They're down to earth. 
They are politically contentious and revolutionary in nature. Third, I think we too often separate the Christmas story off from the rest of the Gospels, rather than seeing them as a kind of origin story of Christ, which sets the course for the rest of his life, this conflict that he feels that he's placed into with those who are oppressing the people. The, the collective depiction of Jesus in the Christmas narratives is as a liberator and a leader of the people of God, as foreshadowed by Moses and David. This isn't to downplay Jesus as saviour of the world. In fact, the angels point to as much in their declaration, but to show us that the biblical witness in the Gospels is not limited to an otherworldly or abs abstract saving of souls, but through Jesus they reveal God as one who has compassion for those who are suffering, as one who cares for those who are downtrodden, a God who walks alongside those who are oppressed, and a God who lifts up those who are lowly. At the cross, not only do we see an act of reconciliation between God and humanity, but we see the inevitable outcome of a life lived in opposition to those who would oppress and peddle injustice. And this is why it's important to read the Christmas story, to read that first Christmas in light of the socio-political context, and not just as a statement of historical fact, because we need Christmas if we're to fully understand the events of Easter. O little town of Bethlehem, how still we see thee lie. Beyond thy bleak and dreamless sleep, the deathly comets fly. And in your torn streets, haunted by visions of the dead. The walls don't shield and can't rebuild a house of broken bread.
So for our intercessory prayers this morning, we've adapted the words of Christian Aid's intercessory prayer for the fourth Sunday in Advent. I've also included a, a short bit towards the end using some of the words from the video that Graham just played, particularly for the people of Gaza. But let us pray to the Lord. Lord, it is you who light my, my lamp. The Lord, my God, lights up my darkness. We pray for our church community at Hillhead. May we be ready to answer your call, Lord. Help us to share the light of your love and proclaim your message of justice, mercy and peace. It is you who light my lamp. The Lord, my God, lights up my darkness. We pray for those who hold power, that they may act with wisdom and compassion. We pray for the voices of the marginalised to be heard and acted upon. Help us to nurture leaders and decision makers who seek peace and recognise the dignity of every person. It is you who light my lamp. The Lord, my God, lights up my darkness. We pray for all people under oppression. We pray for all places where women and girls face inequality. Inspire us to action that together we may tear down barriers created by poverty and injustice. It is you who light my lamp. The Lord, my God, lights up my darkness. We pray for our local communities, the streets, the areas where we live, that here too we will find ways to end poverty. We pray for all those struggling to see any light during dark and difficult times. Help us to welcome and care for all our neighbours in need. It is you who light my lamp. The Lord, my God, lights up my darkness. We pray for those who are grieving, lost or suffering. We pray for those who can see no way ahead. We ask that you light their path, Lord, and bring them comfort. And finally, we want to pray, especially for the Palestinian people in Gaza and in the West Bank. We pray some words from the video Graham played for us, where it says, O suffering child of Bethlehem, whose wounds are always fresh, as love weeps, weeps from your ragged skin, and hope is housed in flesh, and death is not the end. Lord, rescue them and keep hope alive in Christ, the light of the world. It is you who light my lamp. The Lord, my God, lights up my darkness. Loving God, hear our prayers through your Son, the light of the world. Jesus Christ. Amen. We thought it would be a nice thing to do since we're not meeting tomorrow morning to light our fifth and final candle of the, the Advent wreath, the Christ candle. And I thought I'd just read a couple of verses from Isaiah chapter 9. It says, Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Natali. But in the future he will honour Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned.
As we close our service, let me just finish with a word of blessing. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light, and those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. So now, as Christ was born into the world to heal and redeem, so God sends you into the world this season to be light and love, healing and hope. Go now to reflect God's light in the world, and may the grace and peace of God the Father, Son and Spirit, Creator, Redeemer and Sustainer, come upon you this Christmas and remain with you always. Amen.